Once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 8? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you and uh, let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel. We may not get out of chapter 8, we'll see. Uh, but we are working our way through it. And uh, we are this morning continuing in John 8, a very important section containing a very important discourse, the Light of the World Discourse. And uh, we are in a section where Jesus uh, is in a major confrontation with the Pharisees over his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Light of the World, who uh, came into this world, a world of darkness, to light the way back for fallen humanity to find their way back to God. And as we said last week, at this point, the gloves have come off, and uh, now it's like a bare-knuckle brawl. Uh, of course, Jesus, when I say that, I mean no disrespect to the Lord. He was fighting for truth. He had righteous indignation. Theirs were lies of the devil they were defending, and they were working out of their own flesh. Okay, but Let's pick it up in verse 37, where Jesus said to these Pharisees, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. But you seek to kill me because my word is no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Now, guys, Abraham is called the friend of God in the Bible because he heard the words of God when God spoke to him. He believed what God told him, and he obeyed what God told him to do. Unlike the Pharisees who claimed to be Abraham's children, but rejected the word of God when spoken to them by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross the evening before, he basically told them that, you know, he was treating them like friends. But in the course of the evening, he talked about how that uh, friendship with God really is all about loving him, loving each other, and obeying all that he has said. Now, what makes the story of Abraham, initially his name is Abram, even more powerful when it came to his obedience is to realize that when God first spoke to him, he was an idol-worshiping Gentile. Do you realize that? When God first spoke to Abraham, in those days it was Abram, when God first spoke to him, he was an idol-worshiping Gentile living in the Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq. One author put it well, he said, and I quote, about one quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to the story of Abraham. Although Abraham was born and raised a pagan idolater, when God's word came to him, he obeyed it. He turned his back on his old way of life and became a pilgrim and a stranger on the earth and a citizen of heaven. He learned to trust and obey. His spiritual pilgrimage began with a great demand on his faith, and that was to give up his father, and it climaxed with an even greater demand on his faith, and that was to give up his son, Isaac. Abraham staked everything on the dependability of God, 
and the reliability of his word. My word has no place in you, Jesus, in effect, told these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. So do not boast that you are Abraham's heirs. Abraham is not your father. No, indeed, their father was the one whose works they were doing, and it was certainly not Abraham, end quote. Look, the Pharisees pointed to and trusted in, first of all, their pedigree. In other words, they were the descendants of Abraham. And their piety, in other words, they kept the law down to the smallest detail as proof that they were children of God and heaven bound. But here Jesus is telling them that a person can be born a Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham, and yet not really be a child of Abraham. What? Well, bear with me, okay? Uh, I'll read to you a couple of scriptures, and then I'll have you turn to a third uh, on this very point. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew uh, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, uh, not in the letter of the law, not by keeping commandments and rituals, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And then in Romans 9, first of all, verse 6, we read, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Interesting statement. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Only a small number. Those who were true Jews out of a nation of Jews. I will have you turn to Galatians 3. Now, they claimed, the Pharisees, that Abraham was their father. Jesus is claiming, no, he's not your father, because if he were your father, you would believe what he believed and do what he did. And so we're looking at Abraham to find out exactly what he believed and what he did. In Galatians 3, starting with verse 6, we read, Paul said, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of of Abraham. Guys, I want you to notice carefully what Paul said in Galatians 3 about Abraham's faith. It's pivotal. That he didn't just believe in God. He certainly did that. The point Paul is making, though, is that Abraham believed God. In other words, he believed something God had promised him. A promise that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and was then later affirmed in Genesis chapters 13, 15, 17, and chapter 22. Very important promise. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Of course, now God is first appearing to Abram. Abram. In Genesis 12, starting with verse 1, he tells him, Get out of your country. From your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think you realize Abraham was a very wealthy man. Very wealthy man. He only lacked one thing, a son, an heir. That was what he wanted more than anything else in the world. God finally appears to him and promised him a son and told him that through that son, a whole nation of children would be born to him. Even though at the time God made this promise to him, he didn't have any children, not one. In fact, his wife Sarah had been barren for many years. And yet God strengthened that promise. He's not a young man. When God made him the promise, he was 75, okay? Not a young guy. His wife was 65. And he hasn't got kid one. Yet God is telling him, you're going to have so many descendants. In fact, he takes him outside to reinforce this promise. And uh, has him go outside and look up into the night sky. In Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, look now toward heaven. Look up into the heavens, the night sky. And count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God. And God accounted it to him for righteousness. The Hebrew word translated believe means to say amen. God gave a promise to Abraham. And he responded not by saying, God, I'm 75 years old. You're making quite a promise here. How are you going to do this? Can you give me some details? No, he just said, you said it, amen, which means truly, truly, okay? In other words, he believed with all of his heart what God had promised him, and it was this faith that God counted for righteousness. This is the first time, Genesis 15, the first time that the word believe is used in the Bible. First time. But what exactly did Abraham believe? We know he believed God's promise. But what exactly did he believe that allowed God to declare him righteous? Well, let me read to you once again Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, out of the King James Version. Because the uh, New King James, which I love and use, they kind of messed up. Uh, verse uh, 5 in Genesis 15, 5. And then I'll read verse 6. This is the King James Version. And he brought him forth abroad, took him outside, said, Now look toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou art able to number them. And he said to him, So shall thy seed be. That's the way it comes through in the Hebrew. Now because the promise encompasses so many children, you're not going to be able to number them. The translators sought to kind of help us and use descendants, plural. But the Hebrew is actually seed singular, okay? So shall thy seed be. Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. I will have you turn to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4 is an incredible chapter on this very topic. And I'll have you turn to Romans 4. Very important in our understanding what exactly Abraham believed that God accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 4, verse 17. 
Talking about now, uh, Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. Paul is quoting what God told Abraham. In the presence of him whom he believed God. So God told him this in his presence as Abraham was there in God's presence. God told him this, uh, whom he believed. He believed God who gives, listen, life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, Abraham, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, she was 90. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, in being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. In his context, he believed that God could bring life out of his dead body not literally, but dead reproductively. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, she's 90 by the time she actually gave birth. Abraham took this promise and he believed it with all his heart. God said it. I don't know how he's going to do it. It's not me to try to figure it out. I just know if God promised it, I'm not going to waver at anything God says. You could take it to the bank, we would say, right? The check's in the mail. God, if he makes a promise, it's a done deal. Fully convinced that what God has promised, he was able to perform, and God accounted that faith for righteousness. Guys, we have to understand that um, God promised Abraham that out of the deadness of his body and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he was going to give him a son, and through this son, he would have so many descendants. The word Abraham means father of a multitude, so that all the nations of the earth would eventually be blessed. Now, of course, most Orthodox Jews in Paul's day, even to this day, assume that God, the son God was talking about when he gave Abraham this promise was Isaac. Isaac. And of course, if we had nothing more on the subject, that would have been all of our interpretation. But many centuries later, a very brilliant rabbi shows up who gets saved, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. And he tells us, he makes the argument that the promise God gave to Abraham is much larger than Isaac or his physical descendants, the Jewish people. Turn to Galatians 3 and look at verse 7 starting off. Galatians 3, starting with verse 7. Talking about not how that not every Jew is really a Jew. Not all of Israel are really of Israel or descendants of Abraham. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. 
Now, guys, in the course of the statement in verse 8, I'm, excuse me, now, of course, I meant to say, the statement in verse 8, uh, in you all the nations of the earth, is the idea, shall be blessed, is a quote from the original promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Let me read it again. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, please, keep your thinking caps on, okay? Because this is very, in fact, it's such an important passage in Genesis that three times in the New Testament it's quoted and, you know, talked about. This is very important, okay? Now, if, if this promise that, you know, uh, make, make your name great, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to every nation on the face of the earth. If this was just talking about the nation of Israel and the Jewish people specifically and exclusively, that in them all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's hard for us to imagine how such a hated people, we don't hate the Jews, we love them. We talk about the world, right? Uh, how many people hate the Jewish people? Uh, the anti-Semitism, and it's on a rise again. It's hard for us to imagine how this promise could be fulfilled today when so many people hate the Jewish people that they could come to ever say that the Jewish people have blessed every family on the face of the earth. How is that possible? The answer is found in the truth that God is really not talking exclusively of Isaac or the nation of Israel. He's really talking about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and how he would make salvation available to all the families of the earth, not just the physical descendants of Abraham. Of course, Isaac was a part of that promise because he was called the son of promise. He, he was the one God had promised Abraham and Sarah, a son they would have. Isaac was the fulfillment of that promise. But with prophecy, here's what you need to understand. As you study prophecy, you will realize there is often a short-term partial fulfillment and then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. The short-term partial fulfillment was Isaac. Yes, he was the son of promise. The long-term ultimate fulfillment was always Jesus Christ. Always Jesus Christ. Okay? And that through Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed because he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples of the earth to myself for salvation. Salvation is of the Jews in the sense that God chose them and God kept his hand upon them and finally brought Messiah to, to birth through them. They were the instrument. But it was never limited salvation and the idea of being God's people to the Jewish people. He wanted to use Abraham, and ultimately Abraham's descendant, not Isaac, but Jesus, to be the fulfillment of this promise, that in him, Jesus, all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that someday this Messiah, Messiah Jesus, would someday bring a kingdom of righteousness to the earth, made up of people from every nation and family in the world. 
we see this prophetically promised by God to Abraham. So I'm going to have you go back to Genesis 15, verse 5. Actually, I'll read it to you since I'm reading it again out of the King James. We just read it, how God took Abraham outside. He made him this promise. I'm going to make your descendants as so, so numerous. They're not even going to be able to be numbered. Took him outside and said, look in the night sky. Can you count the stars up there? No, they're innumerable, Lord. Well, that's how your descendants are going to be. And he believed God. He believed God. God said, so shall your seed be. So shall your seed be. Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, we read. God said, blessing, I will bless you. And talking to Abraham now, reinforcing the promise. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and of, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, verse 18, and in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Very important that we understand this, okay? And this is why the translators made it plural, and so shall your descendants be. Because the idea was that God was going to give Abraham a lot of kids, okay? Throughout the face of the whole earth. But the Hebrew is actually singular, not plural, not descendants, plural, seed, singular. Confusion there, maybe. But Paul enlightens us. Turn to Galatians 3. Paul jumps on this and uses it to teach a very important doctrine, truth. Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed, now, you know, I don't know if some of the paraphrases translate that like Genesis 15. Now, now to Abraham and his descendants, that would be wrong. Because Paul's picking up on this. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, plural, as of many, in other words, the Jewish people in general, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. And so Paul is telling us that the promise God gave to Abraham, that through his son Isaac, who was called the son of promise in the Old Testament, God would give him so many descendants that they would be innumerable. That promise wasn't really about physical descendants of Abraham or the Jewish people, but it spoke of spiritual children, those who would be born into the family of God by believing in Jesus Christ. The word Abraham means father of a multitude. Now somebody reminded me after first service, Messianic Jewish gal, who was a firm, strong believer in Christ, reminded me, that Abraham and his wife were originally Abram and Sarai. But God changed their names when he brought them out of paganism. He gave them the names Abraham and Sarah. The H sound, in her Hebrew classes she said they were to write that at the top of their paper all the time. Because the H was the breath. And in Hebrew, the breath, ruach, represents the Spirit of God. So what God did was he breathed his spirit into Abram and Sarai, and they became Abraham 
in Sarah, believers, and instruments in the hands of the mighty God to do something that was going to impact the entire world. They would be the instrument eventually through which Messiah would come. And he would be a blessing, not just to the nation of Israel, but to every family in the face of the earth as the gospel would go forth eventually into all the world, which it has done in our day. And so many are embracing Christ. I told first service, I've mentioned it before. I've been hearing reports that a, that a million Muslims are coming to Christ every month through visions and dreams. God's moving. The Spirit of God is moving. He is gathering for himself a people, a people, pagans from every walk of life, and he is breathing into them the breath and spirit of God as they receive his son and become part of a body, a single body spread out the, through the entire world, the body of Christ. And as we go forth with the gospel and people receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, they too become members of the family of God. Incredible what's going on. All promised to Abraham when he was yet uh, just, a just a new believer. But as I said, Isaac was the partial fulfillment of that promise. He was in the Messianic line. And Jesus would eventually be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. In him and Jesus, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Galatians 3.8 is kind of interesting. Let me read it to you. Paul said, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham way back then, beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Do you know that Abraham knew the gospel? What are you talking about? you got to come back next week. <laughs> because Jesus alludes to it. Okay? I just too much to get into today. All right? But Abraham knew the gospel. I can prove it. He knew the gospel. I can prove it to you. I will do so next week. But getting back to... I need you to get you to come back somehow. It's either that or beer and pizza. We're not doing that. So, you know. Some churches are actually doing that. But, okay. Um, but getting back to Paul's argument that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works, uh, turn back to Romans 4. Let's camp there for a little bit as we work our way through this. Getting back to Paul's argument that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. And guys, can I just say this? This is not a revelation to you guys. Because hopefully, as you have come to Calvary, we have touched on this practically every week. But, you know, there's a lot of folks who maybe uh, are going to be listening on the radio or online, and they have a very religious background. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And back in those days, I believe, I was taught, you go to Mass, you light the candles, you pray the rosary, you do other good works, and you earn a place in heaven. It was a revelation for me when I first learned that was not true. This is what Paul's dealing with. Why is he dealing with it? He's talking to Jewish people who, again, very religious, very steeped in a works-slash-righteousness system. You work, you get righteous, and you earn heaven. That's not how it's done. 
in Romans 4, verse 3, Paul said, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The word accounted in Romans 4, verse 3, uh, and Galatians 3, verse 6, are the same Greek word, legizomai. This same word is used 11 times. You think this is an important topic? This same Greek word is used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. In verse 4, it's translated counted. And then in verses 9, 10, and verse 22, it's translated accounted. And then in verses 6, 8, 11, and 23, and 24, it's translated imputed. It's a banking term. It means to put to one's account. Okay? To put to one's account. Now this becomes the crux of Paul's argument, not to mention the foundational doctrine upon which the gospel and therefore our salvation is built. That the righteousness that saves us, now here it is, the righteousness that saves us, allows us to go to heaven, comes from God, comes from God, and is imputed to us through our faith and not earned by us through our works. In other words, we are saved by grace, not works. And Paul makes it a big point in Romans 4 to talk about this. He says you really only have two choices when it comes to heaven. Either you work to earn it or you believe to receive it. Those are your only choices. Abraham, you think he worked to get saved? You think his works got him saved? He was declared righteous. 14 years before he ever got circumcised. We've talked about that. Because the Jews thought circumcision, you need that to get saved. Once you're circumcised, you're in. Paul says he was declared righteous 14 years before he was circumcised. Let's read verse 4. Either you're saved by works or you're saved by grace. And don't look to Abraham as a model of earning his salvation through religious works. Paul said in verse 4, Not to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. The word grace means a gift. A gift. What he's saying is, look, if a person has a job, they earn a wage. Okay, they earn a wage. And after they work all week very hard earning that wage, if the boss was to come and hand them a check and say, says to them, here's a gift, you might lay the guy out. Maybe a gift. I work for this. You owe me this, right? That's what Paul is saying. Now to him who works, has a job, earns wages. Uh, those wages aren't considered a, a gift. Uh, they're a debt. The owner or the boss owes them a debt for working all week and gives them money to satisfy that debt. But if that same person got sick, uh, you know, and couldn't work. And their job didn't provide for, you know, pay when you got sick, okay, like we know today. But back then, say a person couldn't work uh, for a while. That means they wouldn't get paid. They wouldn't have any money coming in. And we'll say after a couple weeks of not being able to work, uh, his boss shows up at his door, knocks on the door. Oh, the guy opens the door, says, look, I know you've been uh, sick, 
hurt, whatever it might be, uh, here's a check for a couple weeks' pay. Now, that would be a gift, wouldn't it? A very generous gift. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Paul said, Abraham did not work for his salvation. None of us can. We're all like helpless, quadriplegic, spiritually speaking. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. Abraham did not work for his salvation. He simply trusted, believed God's word. It was Jesus Christ who did the work on Calvary's cross. Remember, Abraham knew the gospel. And his righteousness was put to Abraham's account, Christ's righteousness. We're going to read in John 16, the only righteousness that God will accept of into heaven is Christ's righteousness. And you have to have that imputed to you, to your account. By your faith in him, God stamps your account, you know, paid in full and you know, gives you Christ's righteousness. It was Jesus Christ who did the work on Calvary's cross, and his righteousness was then put to Abraham's account because of Abraham's faith. Look at Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. We're saved by grace. It's a gift. Not a result of works, lest any of us should boast, right? Back in John 8. So here they come, okay? Jesus and the Pharisees are in a real brouhaha, okay, over truth versus error. They answered, verse 39, said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do that. Verse 41. You do, you do the deeds of your father. You're not Abraham's kids, Jesus said. You do the, the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. All right, there it is. There it is. These Pharisees, furious that Jesus kept denying, kept saying they weren't really Abraham's children, now make a vicious accusation against him about his parentage. They verbalized an accusation, guys, that had been hanging over Jesus' head ever since he was born, that his birth was the result of sexual immorality on the part of his mother Mary. The Greek word translated fornication is pornea. We get our word porn, pornography from that Greek word. It simply means sexual immorality in any shape or form. But listen, ever since Mary had claimed that Jesus was virgin born, come on, most people back then believed she really had an affair on Joseph with another man and then claimed she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be honest, that, that was quite a story, okay? Young gal, 16 years old maybe, uh, engaged, betrothed to a man in that culture, Legally, now he was her husband, although they hadn't consummated the marriage. Suddenly she's pregnant. Joseph thought to divorce her quietly because he was a good guy. Could have brought her before the courts and had her stoned for adultery. He decides he's going to just put her away quietly. He loves her. 
God appears to him in a vision that night, says, Joseph, uh, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up, married Mary. But, but he was satisfied. He believed now. But the town really didn't believe. And this was something of, of a dark cloud that had dogged Mary, and of course later Jesus, his entire life. This, this accusation hanging over his head. Of course, Jesus uh, had been claiming from the very beginning of his ministry that God was his father. And uh, now as he is, uh, he is uh, claiming that the Pharisees, Abraham was not their father. Well, now they attack and said, well, then, you know, your father is not God the father. We don't know who your father is, but we know that we weren't born of sexual immorality like you were born. Say the gloves came off okay again verse 41 jesus said you do your deeds you do the deeds of your father verse 44 tells us who their father is then they said to him we were not born of fornication we have one father and that's god now when the pharisees said we have one father and that's god no doubt they had in mind some old testament well not old testament to them uh was in their scriptures but our old testament they had the, they had a scriptural foundation for this idea that God was their father. They were scholars, these Pharisees, okay? And no doubt they were thinking in part of, well, two verses. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you. Exodus 4, verse 22. Then you, then you will tell them, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And then in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, for I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my oldest child. So they had scriptural foundation for this claim. That God was their father. One pastor put it this way, said, It was true that God was the father of all Israel in a national, in a national sense, national. But spiritually speaking, he was the father only of those who had truly come to saving faith. End quote. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. That same author I quoted just a minute ago went on to say, and I quote, Those who profess love for God yet reject the one who proceeded forth and came from him cannot be true children of God. By refusing to embrace Jesus, the Jewish leaders completely undermined their claim that God was their father. As Jesus had said to them earlier, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, chapter 5, verse 23. And later he would warn them in chapter 15, verse 23, he who hates me hates the Father also. True children of God are inherently characterized by a love for his Son, Jesus Christ. And so verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Now, guys, I'm going to end with this. But I think it's important enough to spend just the last few minutes of our message on this topic. Okay? Why do you not understand my words? Why, why can't you understand what I'm saying to the Pharisees? Because, rhetorical question, Jesus answered it. Because, because you are not able to listen to my word. Earlier in Jesus' ministry... As the scribes and Pharisees kept hearing him preach the gospel and kept, uh, he kept demonstrating that he was Messiah, the Son of God, by doing miracles everywhere, 
they saw this uh, as he uh, performed these miracles and heard his words. We read in John 12, verse 37, But although he had done so many signs, he had worked so many miracles before them, yet they did not believe in him. That was a choice. They chose not to believe in him. The scribes and Pharisees, guys, repeatedly rejected Jesus' ministry when he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah and Savior. And listen, this is important. With each rejection, their hearts grew harder and harder until they passed what some have called the spiritual point of no return. At that point, it was no longer a matter of they wouldn't believe. Now it became a matter of they couldn't believe. I'll read to you John 12, verses 37 and then 39. Again, verse 37, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. They chose not to believe. Verse 39, it come, they, then down the road, verse 39 says, Therefore they could not believe. They first of all chose not to believe. Now it says at one point they could not believe. It was no longer a choice. Their hearts have become so hard. Look, God can do anything he wants, but he will not, he will not force people to believe in his son. I don't care what anyone says. He won't force people to be saved against their will. And um, God will do nothing for those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, even though he has led them Many people have crossed their path over the years to give them the truth, to give them the evidence. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to their heart, convicting them. But at one point, they harden their hearts so much, it's over. You know, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, right? John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, Jesus said, he who hears my word and believes in him who, who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, not go to hell, but is passed from death into life. Look at verse 24 there. He who hears my word, the word that Jesus is referring to is the gospel. To hear the gospel of Jesus doesn't just mean to hear with your ears. It also means to believe with your heart. There are many people that have heard the gospel preached to them many times over the course of their lives, and yet they've never done anything with it. They've never done anything about it. Apparently, they didn't think it was important enough to give it any real consideration, so they heard, but they didn't listen, if you will. They didn't believe what they heard. They didn't receive it into their heart as truth, and therefore, it did them no good. On several different occasions, after making a critical point, guys, with regard to salvation, Jesus spoke these words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me paraphrase. He is saying, for those of you who have open hearts, and not everyone did, but for those of you who have open hearts, don't let what I have just said go in one ear and out the other. Listen with your heart, not just with your ears, and do something about what I'm saying. And just what did Jesus want them and all people to do with his gospel presentation? It's simple. He wanted them to believe. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. He wants all people to get saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. 
by believing in what he had to say. Jesus Christ is the true light who was sent by the Father to give the light of God's truth to every person living in this spiritually dark world. John opened his gospel with that idea in chapter 1, verse 9. But guys, and we've talked about this, there comes a point in the life of every unbeliever, hard-hearted unbeliever, who continually rejects the light of God's truth, where God eventually turns out the lights. And the Holy Spirit stops speaking to their hearts about salvation. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to you right now, don't harden your heart any longer. This may be the last time you'll ever have an opportunity to receive the truth into your heart. Before it gets so hard, it just the truth just bounces off now. At that point, the opportunity for salvation is officially withdrawn by the Holy Spirit. They have passed the spiritual point of no return, and as Jesus said, have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. At that time, the day of grace has ended, and nothing is left except eternal darkness and destruction. Understand, when Jesus said to these Pharisees that they were not able to listen to his word, they were not able because they gave no room for his word in their heart. It's not that God was hiding truth. It's not that God didn't love them enough to give them the truth. He did. God was speaking. They just weren't listening. And why weren't they listening? Because of their pride and rebellion. It made them deaf to the voice of God. Let me end by saying this. That God in his great love desires for all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he will do whatever he has to do to get that person's attention so that they would repent and receive Jesus as their Savior. And what he does with individuals, I also believe he does with nations. We see God using storms like hurricanes on our east coast wildfires and earthquakes on our west coast to get our attention as a nation. We see anger and unrest in the streets of our nation, a nation that's become deeply divided. We see mass shootings that have become so routine, the news services often don't even bother to report many of them. We see him using the financial cliff, we're about to go over $22 trillion in debt. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If that doesn't scare you into the kingdom, I don't know what does. A lot of other things, I'm sure, too. And what does God have to do to finally get our attention as a nation? I mean, I shudder to think. And yet, instead of repenting and getting our lives right with God as a nation... Many in our country are voting for socialism. That's the answer, right? Give the government more control, you know? Which is communism light, what socialism is. This tells us that many in our country, many young people especially, the number is growing every day, are looking to government to take care of them instead of God. And that's the idea. There are many people in this country that want you to look at government as God. They don't want you to have the God of the Bible because that's where your loyalties will lie, with Him. 
But if your loyalties lie with the government, if government is God, this is where you're going to have your loyalties. That's, that's idolatry. To put anyone or anything above God Almighty, to worship that thing and to trust and rely on that thing, to supply your needs, to take care of you, and to be the one or the thing you turn to when times are tough, that's idolatry. And I'll leave you with the words of Thomas Jefferson, sobering statement. He said, look, some of you want big government. Well, remember this, a government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything you have. Reagan said it best. Government is not the solution. Government's the problem. God is the solution. And the more secular we become as a nation, the more we turn to government, the more we turn away from God, the more problems ensue. We are sowing to the wind, and now we're reaping the whirlwind, plain and simple. But God made another promise. I'll end with it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. That's the only hope we got. People of God, turn to God Almighty and beg for mercy. Because otherwise this country is going to be judged. May God give us grace to get on our faces and pray constantly that he would be merciful to America instead of a World, uh, instead of a nationwide judgment, he would bring a nationwide great awakening and revival. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for the many great and precious promises you have made to us as Christians in, the, in your word. Give us grace, Lord, if a pagan unbeliever like Abram could believe your word when you spoke it to him. Shame on us as your kids. When we read your word and we don't believe, we waver at your promises through unbelief. Forgive us, Lord. Give us a heart of faith that when we read your word, we say, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but amen. amen. It's as good as done because you've promised it. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.